Uh, we got booted from stuff like Officer 65 and Azure and all that stuff. But what we did retain access to was Proofpoint. So we basically were able to use our access in Proofpoint to then send in a payload and we just pushed it through Proofpoint and had someone actually detonate that payload. So kind of an interesting uh, twist of event there, but uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was an interesting one for sure. I'm Steve Stormbreaker, and this is Ephemeral Security. Would you please state your name and what you do? Yeah, my name is Devin Cassidy. I'm a security consultant, mainly focused on red team exercises, so kind of run the whole gamut of uh, all the different uh, aspects of penetration testing, network, web app wireless, all that stuff. So lots of fun. Awesome. Why are you passionate about information security? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I, there's kind of two facets to this, right? So there's the kind of uh, the greater good and then the, uh, the personal stuff as well. So uh, I guess starting with the greater good, everything these days is really kind of affected by security. We've got toasters connected to the internet. We've got, you know, everybody's information's out there, you know, doing digital things, whether it's for banking or just, you know, every single thing now is just attached to the internet. It's extremely important. And, um, you know, being a consumer of all that stuff too, uh, I definitely want to make that safe and being able to be a part of that is definitely rewarding to, to know that, um, you know, hopefully making a difference, making things more secure, helping out in that regard. And then when it comes to the personal aspect, um, I, I just love the dynamic challenges. You know, every day is basically a different, a different challenge, different hurdle to kind of overcome, um, whether it's, you know, how to, how to get into something or, um, you know, some, some custom code that you need to write, or, uh, it's just really, really cool, different, you know, different day to day, which is, it's exciting stuff, you know? Awesome. When did you first use a computer? So I am a child of the 80s, <laughs> uh, before the internet got big there. I think my, my earliest memory is probably using like, I think it was like the old like i386 PCs maybe. My dad, who is an, like a real OG programmer, he used to do a lot of assembly programming for like mainframes and all this stuff. He basically got me into the, the computing world you know, when I was extremely young, um, you know, maybe less than five so bringing me to like different computer conferences and uh, or computer fairs to, you know, where you're buying all these parts and kind of a neat little thing there and bringing them back, kind of assembling them. But at that time, I was kind of just more into the games. You know, I wanted to taste of that Mario Brothers from Nintendo. I wanted to I wanted, I wanted to play games on computers. So probably the earliest, you know, just uh, all, all that stuff, getting getting into early gaming on, on computers. So fun stuff. That's super exciting. And uh, how did you end up in InfoSec? So my background is kind of weird. I definitely did not go about entering InfoSec the traditional way, quote. You know, like I kind of mentioned for the previous question, you know, I, I was kind of always into computers growing up. Even when I started to go into college, my, my goal was to become a computer engineer. But then I realized that I really don't like math that much when it comes to like all the calculus and all this stuff that was going on in there. Uh, so I kind of got detracted from that and didn't really want to do it anymore. Basically, my freshman year, I didn't even get to touch any computer classes. No one really turned me on to like computer science, which I think would have probably been a better route. But I ended up changing my major and in a weird kind of turn events. I actually majored in 
in Japanese language and literature. So basically the furthest thing removed from, uh, you know, tech, right? So, you know, fast forward, I've basically been working jobs, you know, at, at a video game company, not doing anything technical, a lot of kind of language related stuff, uh, international business. And I just got really bored. I was like, you know, I, I still like computers a lot. I want to want to get back into this stuff and, and learn something new. So after about you know eight years or so at that job, I said, yeah, I'm I'm going to quit and just kind of dive into some tech stuff instead. So uh, my my buddy at the time, he was doing uh, some point of sales installations for some like major fast food restaurants and and other chains and stuff, and kind of took me under his wing. So kind of used that opportunity to kind of get my feet wet in the field. And then really kind of put a lot of focus on learning like network stuff and, and started to teach myself Python and other coding. But, um, you know, someone was like, oh, you know, why don't you check out cybersecurity? Like, it's, it's really big. I was like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's, that's a good idea. Well, let me see what's going on in there and started researching kind of different directions. And then um, I stumbled upon the whole penetration testing thing. I'm like, what? You know, like, this is this is a thing. Like, it's amazing. Like you can, you can hack and not go to jail. <laughs> so I was like, this is fantastic. So, uh, really started to put in a lot of effort, kind of just learning everything I could in that regard. And yeah, fast forward to now, you know, it, it's a passion. It's something that I love and, you know, doesn't even feel like I'm working. So, <laughs> so what are you doing now? Uh, so interesting right, right now, I'm actually, uh, in transition period. I'm about to get back into a, a new role at SecureWorks. Uh, I'm going to be a, uh, a managing principal consultant there as a global tech lead for the red team. So kind of taking over that service should be a lot of fun. It's pretty exciting times. You were at SecureWorks before and now you're coming back to kind of run things or? Oh uh, yeah. And I wouldn't say uh, completely run things, but uh, it's specifically for like the red team service, I'll be dealing a lot with that and kind of, it, it'll basically be my baby. So uh, basically can direct and help kind of establish the, the TTPs there for the team and, you know, help develop stuff and also hop into the operations as well. So it should be a lot of fun. Interesting. So what's the best way you found to hone your skills? So I, I guess uh, kind of going back to kind of how I got to where I was, it's kind of an awesome time now with how many resources there are out there. I remember, I remember when I was in college way back when, and had the idea to, you know, put Linux on my machine for the first time. And this was before YouTube and before all like the really awesome resources. So I struggled a lot with trying to kind of pick that up by myself, you know, buy some books, but didn't really help that much. The amount of resources that are available today is just uh, amazing. I would say for me, it's definitely a lot of reading, but it's also a lot of hands-on stuff. So um, hitting labs, building things, coding things myself, as much hands-on time as I can get. I think is kind of the, the best way for me to kind of learn that stuff and really dig deep. So I'm a huge advocate for Hack the Box and all those kind of labs and stuff. I think they do a lot to teach kind of out of the box thinking and um, kind of the, the mindset and perspective there for you know what, what you need in order to to be a pretty efficient penetration tester and and all that. And um, you know, I don't think it's the only way. Uh, some of them, you know, obviously some of the situations are kind of contrived and uh, not always very realistic, I, I suppose, if you're looking at like CTFs and stuff. But uh, I think they do help a lot. So uh, definitely attribute a lot to to those kind of uh, labs or uh, vulnerable machines that kind of got me to where I am. And um, yeah, I still enjoy doing them today. But yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of good building stuff. It's fun. Got it. So from when you started doing 
red teaming. So was red teaming and penetration testing, is that the same um, thing or not? So I guess this, this gets into semantics, right? So it's, it's a lot of, um, I guess if you ask someone else, they might tell you something different. To me, it's kind of different. So I would say you could kind of absorb penetration testing into red team exercises as a whole, perhaps. But if you want to, I guess, uh, get into more of the semantics again, red team would equate to maybe a little more like the adversary emulation or simulation type aspects where the, the goals are slightly different from what a penetration test uh, would typically focus on. So um, penetration testing, you know, less focused on uh, detection and response and really more of kind of rooting out the, the issues, uh, you know, whether that be misconfigurations, uh, vulnerabilities that are present and uh, kind of following that attack chain. Whereas, you know, red team exercises, uh, and again, I'm speaking more in terms of adversary emulations or simulations, uh, really kind of focused on testing the blue, blue side as to, you know, their detection and response capabilities. And that could not only just be the personnel, uh, you know, like the security team, but, you know, obviously also the, the security tools, devices, and the team as a whole. So that would be more or less my, my definition of that or how to separate those. Are your teams ever asked to emulate specific APTs uh, in their tactics? Because I think that you know some companies they might be more aware of like which like what are the top five you know APTs that might be targeting my organization given my like vertical? Would they ask you to try to emulate those, or is that too specific? Yeah, you know, I think it really depends on the engagement and what the what the client is looking to get out of everything. So uh, sometimes in the past, they're like, "Oh, can you you know kind of emulate stuff surrounding like the Solar Winds aspect or like all these ADFS attacks and stuff that were happening in, in a different regard or cer- certain different things like that." So I guess it depends. Personally, I I think it's it can be kind of tough because a lot of EDRs or a lot of the detection stuff that's out there is really going to focus on those kind of like known bads. So, you know, once the, an APT is out there for a while and they're studying their, you know, their, their TTPs, uh, establishing, you know, signatures for whatever the tools are using or the behavior. So it kind of gets shut, you know, your, your red team operation kind of gets shut down if you're limited to only sticking to those kind of TTPs, right? So if the if the client's kind of worried about those things, I, I feel like that's better geared towards more of like a purple team exercise, uh, in my opinion. But again, you know, it's really going to come down to what they want. And uh, if, if they want to specifically test their controls uh, and, you know, detection capabilities in regards to like very specific TTPs, and that's great. But, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it's really going to, the bigger benefit is going to be to really look at those unknowns, kind of different different TTPs that they might not have seen before to kind of keep them on their toes and, um, you know, for, for a new attack that's coming, right? So that's, in my opinion, the more important aspect overall for the exercise. Got it. Yeah, this is a good segue, I guess, into my next question. So you're right, yeah, most EDR vendors are, are, are good at detecting the, the known APT techniques. I think mm-hmm. MITRE... Uh, did something recently where uh, they compared, I think it was like 20 different EDR vendors uh, against, I think like four or five different uh, APT, like Sandworm and stuff like that. And then they were all rated on that. And they had a few rounds or whatever to tweak their products. But what do you think about like the MITRE TAC framework and you know things like Palo Alto, they have their traps, right? And so uh, mm-hmm. if you're trying to use like your LOL bins or whatever, um, they, they're going to you know, immediately flag something, right? If uh, someone's calling like cert util uh, um, yeah, yeah. or NSLOOKUP or indefinite EXE or whatever, right? So 
Do you routinely test different EDR vendors against a range of attacks in the MITRE ATT&CK framework categories? So I, I guess I would split this up into in two kind of separate answers, maybe. Uh, so first is, you know, for, for red team exercises or, you know, uh, whether that be adversary emulation simulations or penetration tests, you know, it could be really a, a wide variety of different things that we're encountering. So, uh, you know, we, we might not really know going into uh, an engagement, you know, what kind of EDRs present in that environment. So it's kind of just kind of be ready. And again, if, if it's a penetration test, you're less worried about, you know, using your, your big and bad, you know, TTPs, the real stealthy OPSEC focused ones. Whereas for the, you know, red team exercises, you're probably going to want to bring out your big guns and, and, you know, try hard to, to get around all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, we don't really know until we land on a box, uh, you know, what that environment is going to look like. So you kind of got to be ready for everything. But um, in terms of like specifically testing, you know, one one vendor over another, you know, th th there's definitely some lab work done, but more for, I guess, for the red side to know how to develop stuff, to be ready for those kind of OPSEC focused uh, engagements, right? But then, you know, I also have a unique kind of perspective too, because, you know, I, I did work for two different EDR companies. So you, you kind of have a, a different, different view, kind of more hands-on approach to that stuff. And um, uh, in one regard in the past, something that uh, I was taking charge of and, and had a lot of experience with is basically setting up kind of frameworks to basically run through known TTPs, you know, common kind of attacks, different attack chains, different, different aspects of that to see where things need to get tuned up. But it's kind of fun. So basically, uh, kind of kind of like the Atomic Red Team type type thing, if you're familiar with that. So basically, uh, what I wanted to do was kind of separate out the different tactics and everything like that and bring them up in their own modules. So if you're focused on network type stuff, maybe you've got a whole bunch of similar things grouped together for like LDAP type uh, activity or you're looking specifically towards endpoint stuff and focusing on all about, you know, LSAS dumping or stuff like that, creating those modules and then basically making it so that way the, the blue team or, or the people that are really focused on developing and, and making signatures on the EDR can just replicate that stuff over and over again. So uh, that way it's kind of hand, they don't really need the, the red team consultants in there all the time. They can kind of just take that, run with it, and then kind of see, you know, what, what needs to be tuned up. And what was pretty fun was that uh, basically made this flow where once they kind of established some new signatures for things that uh, need to be tuned up, you know, it'd get kind of tossed back to the red team consultants to come up with bypasses. So then, you know, new modules are created that have bypasses for those things. And then it's just kind of cat and mouse. So it's, it's, it, it's kind of fun. Um, and again, you know, you're not, we're not really, the goal was not to have the, the biggest and baddest techniques that we would normally reserve for our OPSEC focused, you know, want to be stealth kind of engagements. It was more just to get the kind of core stuff down that, you know, should be caught from your run of the mill kind of pen tests. And, you know, even, even some APTs that are extremely soppy. <laughs> I mean, there's uh, some really interesting write-ups that I've seen for certain activity that I'm just like, this is, this is crazy. So catching those things, the low hanging fruits and what you'd expect. Right. That must have been really fun to make. I, I I know I would have I would enjoy making something like that. Yeah, it's cool, and you know it's a it, it's also an interesting kind of approach to where you know you can you can have stuff on the network side too. So you know set up an attack box and kind of collect those PCAP data as you're running it to kind of pass it off to the team so that way they can look for network signatures. And then you also can kind of rig stuff to interact with the endpoint. I use Python. 
at the time for that thing, accessing via WinRM uh, with those libraries and then kind of messing around on the endpoint, generating some more telemetry and noise there to see um, you know what's getting caught on the endpoint. But yeah, it is kind of fun and get to kind of make these cool little, um, <laughs> it's like it, you're almost creating a full automated solution to like a hack the box problem. So it's like all kind of like contrived. Maybe you're setting up a, just a vulnerable server and then kind of just mapping out this whole attack chain. So as like a scenario, it's like, okay, you've got a IIS server that's kind of vulnerable to this deserialization stuff. What does that look like in totality in terms of the overall chain from you know, the genesis to that to Privesk or something like that? So um, you're looking at the network aspect where, okay, you're attacking, you're attacking this application. Uh, you're landing on the server as probably like a service account you know, maybe doing some token manipulation to escalate and then dumping LSAS or something like that. So you got this kind of cool kind of whole chain module that you kind of just look at and kind of build upon. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. It does sound fun. Did you use like Vagrant or what did you use to kind of manage building your virtual um, machines? So a lot of that was actually manual. Um, so I, I kind of got away from it. Uh, it got passed off to more of a research centric uh, team while I went back to um, <laughs> the consulting side for a bit. But uh I'm not really sure what uh, what happened with it afterwards, but um, a lot of it was just kind of manual tinkering, kind of setting up setting up those servers manually to configure it for any of the like Linux based stuff. Pretty easy to just use Ansible to, to spin those up and configure it as you needed. But the Windows side was a little bit more kind of static, kind of save the configurations. There probably could have been a lot of work done there to to make it a little bit better um, in terms of kind of dynamically generating some neat scenarios there. But uh, yeah, it's for uh, it's for another day. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you ever have to write custom exploits for engagement? Yeah. So, yes. Uh, and it, I think it really kind of depends on what you're up against and that environment's like. So, kind of as an interesting anecdote, actually, I had a really interesting engagement a couple weeks back. The client basically tasked us with, and, and this was just a kind of your, your standard penetration test, not an actual red team exercise. The, um, the client had asked us to get into this application. Uh, which is a third-party application. And, you know, okay, so that, that's cool. Good goal. Uh, we were able to privilege escalate to domain admin. So basically managed to, to get to that point and romp around the network. But what was interesting was that you basically needed to have a client to interact with this application. And you also had very separate authentication for, for this. So, you know, domain admin didn't really help very much. So dig into the application server, start hunting around and find a database connection string. So that's cool. Get into the database, you get all the data. So in the back door, basically in the back end there. So get all the data, but I still kind of really wanted to get in the front door as well. Uh, and what I noticed was that there was a table in there that contained a bunch of encrypted passwords, but it wasn't really clear at the time, you know, what this what kind of encryption standards it was, uh, what was what was actually happening there. So kind of tabled that, uh, started hunting around for users. So looking at the the users there and kind of mapped them to Active Directory. Started using my my privileges to hop into their machines, just kind of hunting around to see if I get lucky with any kind of like password files that, you know, people are <laughs> always leaving around on their desktop. So I got lucky and I found one, uh, but uh, the passwords didn't work. Uh, there's actually two passwords.txt files, but they're all older. But I noticed a pattern. There's this weird kind of got your password and then just a, a slightly different number at the end, which I assumed was the password last changed <laughs> date. 
So looking back at the, the database, you know, uh, hunting around there, it indeed kind of lined up and matched with the, uh, the dates that they, they changed it. Uh, and I, I guess then I got in, right? So that's all great. Super cool. But still wanted admin. Uh, that was just a normal user. So I started looking at the, the encryption data and I started noticing this really weird pattern, which I thought was kind of like padding or something was, something was really weird. But it, it made me think that this was some kind of like XOR cipher or some stream cipher, uh, something that could maybe be broken. And now that I had a plain text password, I could actually start doing some crypt analysis on this to see exactly what was going on. So was I actually able to go back into the server as the domain admin to my luck? Uh, it was actually a Java-based application, so I was able to grab all the .jar files for this application, uh, toss them into a decompiler, and I started looking at the, the code for this. So what I noticed was that it actually wasn't being encrypted, it was actually being hashed, but it was a basically what looked like a homebrewed hashing algorithm, which uh, from just gut instinct looked extremely, extremely weak. So what I noticed was that that pattern that I saw that was reoccurring was actually just kind of like a padding, but it was kind of used for the math to, to perform the actual hashing algorithm. And so I started analyzing it, recreating it, discovered that all of these hashes were 100% brute forceable and could basically be cracked instantly without any kind of word list. You could, you could basically just, wow. due to how the hashing algorithm worked, it, it gets a little complicated. Uh, I plan on writing a, a little thing about this, but um, basically the way it worked in, in a quick summary was that the neighboring byte of your password would affect the one before it. So if you can guess the first two characters of a password, you can basically then just kind of move over byte by byte and guess everything. And the real kicker was that when I was trying to recreate the hash, it wasn't matching for some reason. So I, I rewrote it, was trying to figure out why I wasn't creating the hash that I had of this plain text password. And what I found out was that the application was actually converting any user's input to uppercase. So it was basically ignoring case. And after I added that bit in, it everything started to match up. So I'm like, oh, all right, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> that really helps because now the key space is a lot lower. So basically to brute force those first two characters, it's like something in the ballpark of like, you know, 4,500 characters or something like that. So real, real quick and simple. And then it's just, uh, you know, 67 characters or you know, different combinations for everything thereafter. So, um, so it kind of went deep, you know, probably took more time than I should have, but I really wanted to get admin on this thing and uh, basically wrote this brute forcer in Rust and just shredded all these hashes to nothing. Um, so <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Is that something that we, you know, I encounter all the time? Absolutely not. But there are definitely situations where, if you could script stuff up quickly, or you can, you know, develop something quickly on the fly like that, it could be super beneficial and just kind of lends its hand to show impact even more for those engagements. So that was, that was pretty fun stuff. That's super interesting. That that's really cool. It kind of reminds me a little bit, I think it was like SQL 2000, they just did like an XOR <laughs> on the clear text password. Um, if you, if you were nice. able to, to grab it on the wire or whatever. So, um, yeah. Going back to the EDR stuff, how do you weigh knowing how to avoid tripping a particular EDR or like a way to get around some of their alarms versus like notifying that vendor of like shortcomings in their product? Yeah, so this is interesting, right? Because like I mentioned, I, I work for two different companies that 
you know, provide EDRs and, and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really delicate balance because our goal is to basically simulate a really advanced adversary. And our goal is to bypass these security controls and not be detected as best as possible. So afterwards, when they come back and are like, hey, you know, uh, you know we're paying money for the CDR, you know, why didn't it detect this stuff? So it's, it's definitely very delicate. But at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're not testing things uh, or it's kind of agnostic testing for these kind of devices, but kind of going back to what I was mentioning again, you know, these are, these are unknowns, right? That EDRs and all these things can really only work off of known behaviors or, uh, you know, you can incorporate machine learning or whatever to kind of learn that behavior maybe better, but you're really working off signatures and kind of known behaviors and things like that. So I think a lot of people understand that's incredibly hard to really detect things that are not known. But again, it, it's, you know, we'll take that data back and eventually share it with the teams to let them know, you know, shortcomings. But um, it is also kind of that fine balance of, you know, we need these TTPs as well to be effective, but we also should let them know <laughs> because, you know, it obviously enhances the security even more. So yeah, there's no real, really solid answer of, you know, like when and, and how to do that. In terms of kind of just the, the the questions that we would get from from clients, you know, again, it's just that delicate balance, and um, hoping that they understand that you know we're not trying to just only bypass you know a certain EDR coming at this from an agnostic perspective and trying our best to really simulate and work at a very high level. So kind of a tiptoe answer, but uh, <laughs> I hope that kind of um, shed some light on that. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. Plus, a client could always open a ticket with the EDR vendor, right? Oh, oh absolutely. And and you know, we definitely uh, definitely encourage that as well. You know, and, and for anything, you know, it's I'm not specifically just talking about any of the companies that I work for, but um, anything that they feel that um, you know was missed, uh, you know, definitely helps to to let the let the vendor know and uh, you know get them get them on the ball for that stuff too. So. So after you've already achieved all your goals in an engagement, and if you haven't heard anything from the security team or the client, do you start getting louder and louder until like they notice? Yeah, and I, I think this will again kind of goes, you know, will depend on the objectives, and um, you know, if, we, if we've already accomplished everything, or we want to test certain things in their environment that we know that they want to kind of have uh, stressed a little bit. Yeah, we'll definitely try to ramp up the noise. So. We've been quiet, you know, we haven't really heard very much. Uh, they're not really chiming in too much or, you know, if we have update meetings and they're not really mentioning if they saw anything, maybe we'll suggest too that we're going to try and uh, break our kind of silence and, and stealth here just a little bit and increase the telemetry that would be output or, or do some things that would kind of appear to be missteps, heavier volumes of, of certain things as well. So I feel like it, it really kind of depends on the client's maturity too. You know, if they're really wanting their their personnel kind of look at this stuff and kind of see and be able to notice this thing as a, as a part of the whole entire exercise as opposed to just an afterthought or uh, or after the report's all done kind of seeing like oh man this is what happened i think it's more beneficial for uh, at some point to yeah start having them look and maybe get them on our tail and try to evict us at that point so so what can customers do to get the most out of pen testing engagements so I would definitely say that preparation's a big thing, right? So uh, making sure they're prepared and ready to go, that they're waiting to last minute. Oh, we got we got a test, or we got a red team exercise coming up tomorrow. We gotta <laughs> gotta get going. Uh, so time to patch. <laughs> yeah, gotta gotta get going. But um, uh, definitely preparations first thing would be would be good. 
you know, let the other people know who should know about the exercise, get them on board, communicate internally and stuff like that. But really is that communication and the, the stuff that comes after. And it really depends on, you know, the reasons why the client is asking for the penetration test or the red team exercise in the first place. Is it, is it compliance reasons? Is it, you know, are they really, really looking forward to, you know, strengthening their security program? But I really think that it's important to act on everything, you know, that they see in the report and, and engage more with the consultant. You know, it shouldn't be just a one-way road where the consultants just, here's a report. And that kind of goes in hand with proper consulting as well. There should definitely be some kind of communication conversation about everything. Consultants should be guiding the client through if they're not that familiar with the topics, they're not familiar with the, what's going on, kind of helping them understand everything, the content in there. Really, it's, you know, after a certain point, you know, it's really going to be beneficial for the, the client to take that stuff, really ingest it with the, the rest of the team, and hopefully extract all the actionable items and start, you know, getting to work on it, whether that's, you know, patching up the misconfigurations that they have in their Active Directory or um, noticing where there was kind of a breakdown in detection and response and really kind of using that info to establish new processes and putting that in, implementing it for the future. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's preparation. It, I mean, it's funny, depending on how big your company is, you could be preparing the whole year for the next one and only have like half the stuff done you're supposed to, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. It, it's it's tough because clients want penetration tests or they want red team exercises and then kind of got to wait for the, that pipeline, whether where that scheduling fits in. And then everyone's busy too, you know, from, from the company side for the, for the client. So there might be fires to put out. There might be, you know, something at that time that's just not predicted kind of happened to come up at the same time. So it's, uh, it's definitely... It, from a scheduling perspective and just, you know, everyone's time and resources, it's, it's definitely a challenge, but um, the more preparation, the more kind of stuff you can get ready and the people you can get ready at the time would definitely go a long way for the kind of real benefits that you can get out of these exercises. Right. And I mean, so sometimes I kind of look at the infrastructure in companies as you have the normal like systems engineering team that Maybe they're building out VMware clusters or maintaining just regular IT servers like Active Directory. And then you have DevOps and full stack developers, and they're doing something totally different in the cloud. And a lot of times those two teams don't talk to each other. Yeah. What have you noticed in engagements, um, I guess, b between the, those two different landscapes? Mm -hmm. I guess the different techniques you use to, to gain admins of those environments or, or move around. Yeah. So different teams eventually need to get involved, right? So most of the time, it's starting out as, you know, the security team is really kind of the, the main interface or the, the, the point of contact for these engagements. And then kind of as the engagement goes on or you're presenting some findings, that kind of circle of, of in the know kind of spreads out a little bit wider where they're starting to forward the, the meeting invites to, to other teams. And I think it really depends on, you know, like, like you mentioned, kind of what you've touched and what you're getting into, whether it's, okay, you've got the, the Active Directory team to really focus on Active Directory, but... The consultants also touch this web app that's in-house and they broke that too. Um, so now we got to, you know, like you said, get the app guys involved. It, it kind of spreads out. And again, it, it kind of goes into that in, internal communication stuff as well, where I think it's really important to keep everybody on the same page, which is a little bit more difficult for red team exercises, obviously, because, you know, there's, there's really supposed to only be a few people that are kind of in the know for that. But if you look at it from the more of the penetration testing aspect, you know, I don't think there's any real reason to keep it secret unless you really want it to be a secret. But 
if you're really looking to more flesh out the the issues for services and uh, you know misconfigurations or infrastructure issues and involve those teams early. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any any problem bringing them in and just making sure that everybody's aware of what's going on. So that way they, they'll know to kind of um, carve out a little bit of time because they're probably going to need to remediate stuff. So. <laughs> so I think I've heard like stories of clients behaving badly during uh, penetration tests and where like <laughs> you might inform, okay, we, we got this trophy, we've got admin in this box. And then some of their team like removes your admin <laughs> and um, you're back to like square one. And so like, I guess, do you have any lessons learned? Like maybe I shouldn't have told them I already have admin because now I can't, you know, go to step B, C, and D. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's, uh, that's another balancing act, right? So my mindset is if it's something that's critical and it's just, you know, a, uh, you know, regular penetration test, I'm going to try to let them know early just so that way it's not a surprise. And, um, you know, if it is something that's big, you know, they should know about it and start to kind of get the gears turning in, in order to kind of kick off that remediation effort later. So I've, I've been lucky in, in most cases, uh, I haven't really had very many aggro clients. I consider myself to be pretty chill. Like nothing really bothers me very much. So I'm, I'm pretty decent at parrying, you know, when the, when the aggressiveness comes and usually they're, they're okay after that. But, um, so overall, you know, mostly have been pretty happy people that I've been working with, um, nobody too, uh, too bad, but, um, you know, sometimes you do get, you know, people that are being a little stubborn or, um, want to do certain things and you kind of, kind of talk them off the edge and <laughs> work with them a little bit, uh, or they want to fix something immediately. And in some cases, you know, sure that might be okay, but, what I've noticed too is that I've been in cases where they will act on something without having the full details of what's going on, because obviously you know we try to provide a, a good kind of high level overview to get them ready for things, uh, kind of ahead of the report, right? But sometimes we'll try to act on that stuff immediately and then break stuff, <laughs> and then they're then they're upset. So been in situations where um, I think it was for like a Active Directory certificate services uh, kind of vulnerability. They tried to fix something and, you know, broke Active Directory for a while. Wow. Uh, and then they were pretty upset. They're like, ah, oh, you know, they didn't, you know, you guys didn't tell us how to fix this. Um, I'm like, you know, I, I, I understand that you, you want to act on this stuff. And I agree, you know, like it, it's a good idea to start, you know, looking at remediation. But at the same time, you know, kind of as a consultant or, or specifically for, you know, a red team consultant, it's incredibly hard for us to know intimately about you know the client's environment outside of kind of what we've seen during that engagement which is really you know sometimes you're able to go really deep sometimes it's you're accomplishing objectives but it's still kind of shallow so you know we we don't know everything about you know the active directory and what links up with where so if if we're giving kind of high level recommendations for these fixes really they need to be looked at a little bit deeper without just saying okay yeah we're gonna flip this switch and everything's gonna be good kind of get a really research and, and, and look. So again, it's kind of it's kind of delicate because we want to give as much information as we can for clients and you know what, what should they should be doing to fix certain things. But at the same time, it's not a, a one size fits all because there could be things that we have no idea about uh, that are kind of affected by that uh, in that network. So um, kind of just have to <laughs> take that with a grain of salt and uh, not, not get mad. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You can tell us for an off like uh, like LL, uh, MR or whatever. 
but they have like a Windows 2000 server that relies on it or like that BIOS naming yeah. or whatever. <laughs> right. Just turn it all off. Yeah, what could go wrong? exactly. <laughs> uh, so I'm curious, have you dealt with uh, Linux boxes that have SE Linux installed? Um, and if you got, let's say, a shell on those, were you able to escalate privileges? Was that due to like a misconfiguration? Or uh, I'm curious about that. So interestingly, uh, personally, I really haven't come across too many situations where I'm landing on a, a Linux box, uh, kind of either naturally or in a situation where, you know, something gets exploited and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself on a Linux box. Definitely been in some situations where it's maybe from like an external penetration test where you find some kind of vulnerability in a web app or something like that, where you might land some kind of code execution, but never really experienced anything where it was super locked down in terms of, you know, couldn't really do very much. And then in terms of just uh, like internals, I haven't really seen anything too crazy in that regard, just in, in my experience. You know, I'm sure they're out there and it's just kind of the luck of the draw from what I've seen, but um, I've never really felt too impeded by um, <laughs> anything I've come across on, uh, on Linux machines, whether that's just like EC2 instances that I have access to now or containers or anything like that. So uh, could be an interesting challenge though. <laughs> right on. I, I want to do kind of a thought exercise with you. I know I was thinking like, well, Linux is SE Linux. Like, why doesn't Windows have something like that? If you think about an application should, let's just say it's IIS, right? And you you know what applications mm -hmm. are on there, right? Let's just say it's a regular like ASP.NET website and it should, only, it should only be able to like write to certain directories or whatever. Mm -hmm. I know you can set like permissions like that, that IIS user can only write, read and write to like certain directories. But if you like a limited shell on a box, you can, there's so many different privesque things you can do, right? I'm wondering why like nobody's figured out yet how to be like, well, this is an IS process and it should never be able to do like XYZ. And then maybe like look at bare minimum like monitor sysmon and see like, you know, if if stuff's going on from that process that should not yeah. be happening. I don't know. I'm just wondering why can't we solve this as an industry? Yeah, so I, I would say that uh I guess kind of playing off that IIS example. There are definitely, you know, good signatures out there and good detections in place for weird activity coming from IS uh, processes. Uh, specifically, you know, if you're uh, kind of going back to something that I mentioned earlier, like a deserialization type thing, or you know, anything like that, where you're starting to get code execution from that process. So there's definitely some weird stuff there. Uh, you know, if if you're seeing some some uh, you know, process calling out, doing some weird things that it shouldn't. Obviously, that's a big tip off. So there's a lot of things there that you can kind of latch on to. Again, you know, there's obviously people bypassing things all the time. So it's an, it's incredibly tough to play that cat and mouse game. But I still feel like there are some pretty solid signatures and, and detections kind of based around that sort of activity, uh, both at the network level and also on the endpoint itself. But I guess in terms of kind of what you were talking about, Application whitelisting is is a huge, huge thing that is effective, but the trade-off is it's also incredibly, really hard to fine-tune. But what I found is that, and even though I haven't really come up against too many companies where they've really strictly implemented these things, it's extremely beneficial if you can spend the time to really sit down and figure out you know, what that machine needs to have on it only, stripping it away, and then building that whitelisting rule set it's going to take away a lot of attack surface and a lot of possibilities of, okay, yeah, if they do, if an attacker is able to actually, you know, breach this for whatever reason, whether it's from uh, some 
you know, new hot zero day against the uh, IIS and they've got code execution, you know, basically limiting them to that. And then um, that's it for the, for the time being. You know, if they, if you've, if you're taking away all the goodies, uh, it's going to be incredibly hard, not impossible. They're, you know, obviously, like I said, there's, there's bypasses and people are coming up with new novel ways to kind of evade and get around things all the time. But I guess to look at it from another perspective too, if you look at Mac stuff, Mac sandbox, they have their own, you know, sandboxing rules that you can apply to every application, which is pretty powerful. But if you put that in the control of people, you know, it, sometimes there's flaws there too. So it's really just kind of making that time commitment and investment and, and time to really dial in, you know, what's necessary, but it's, it's a lot easier said than done. So. Yeah, definitely. Have you ever in an engagement come across a machine that once you compromise it, you realize that it's actually actively compromised by an adversary. Like, you know, there's like a, like a web chopper shell on it or something like that. And you're like, oh, there's already some people on here that shouldn't be on here. <laughs> uh, I've personally not been in that situation, but I had heard stories from other consultants that have experienced uh, such things. And, um, you know, it's uh, that's kind of a, you know, red light, stopping the engagement, letting the client know, and then it's time to <laughs> contact IR and uh, get them involved. So that's kind of a showstopper. Um, so I've definitely heard war stories around that, but um, yeah, it's a pretty scary thing. And, you know, definitely something that uh, I think consultants should be aware of uh, and be kind of attentive of during their engagements is, you know, if you are poking around, you know, look for stuff that's weird. If you're on that machine already, you landed there and again I, I feel like it depends on you know how you got to that system but if you got there you know who's to say that somebody else hasn't already done that too so you might as well keep an eye out and um you know help out where you can so definitely a scary situation though the same spirit i'm curious do you ever come across clients that don't know their own ip space like they say okay scan these ip addresses but they actually don't own some of them or like somebody fat fingers a domain name and you end up compromising something that the company doesn't own so uh definitely do our own due diligence to confirm that stuff ourselves just as precaution because obviously we don't want to <laughs> compromise yeah other systems and that also kind of goes with uh payload generation stuff as well which uh, I'll, I'll come back to that and kind of get to your, your core question. But um, so, yeah, I've definitely had clients that aren't very in tune with their, their own infrastructure, might take some more time for them to verify certain things, or they don't know what's going on. Uh, happens all the time. Not a huge deal. It, it's more, again, with that internal communication where that point of contact might not really be the full on, you know, technical person, more just kind of leading the group uh, is not too aware of, you know, like you said, IP space or all the domains that they have. And then they contact somebody else who needs to contact somebody else. And then it's just kind of the telephone game. And eventually we'll get the list. But, you know, at the end of the day, it really comes down to that due diligence to make sure that, um, you know, this is accurate. And, and uh, we're not just <laughs> hammering away on some uh, some web service that doesn't belong to them. But then when it comes to like uh, payload stuff too, just as kind of another precaution, you know, you could do a lot of good stuff with kind of keying the payloads to make sure that, you know, it's only in the domain that you want it to be, or it's only getting executed on a machine that is domain joined for a specific, you know, client or something like that. So that way, if, if someone else does open it, you know, you're not just getting a, a beacon on a, uh, <laughs> on a poor person's machine that's at home. Uh, and, you know, definitely want to be careful doing that, you know, get a stop, kill that and <laughs> kind of go back. But so definitely um, 
powerful stuff that you can do to, to make sure and kind of just, uh, you know, protect yourself too. Got it. That makes sense. So what are some of the memorable engagements you've been a part of? I like weird stuff, man. So I like I, the weirder, the better. Like if the engagement is weird, I get excited. If it's just like your kind of standard run of the mill, AD, privesque to the normal means, <laughs> accomplish goals that way, hunting down shares and just logging in places. Uh, yeah, it's still fun, but I really like it when it gets weird. So put me in the weirdest environment and I'll have a lot of fun kind of just creating a challenge and trying to get around. So I've had a lot of fun lately with um, predominantly Mac environments uh, in kind of decentralized infrastructure. Something that definitely have been noticing more and more these days, especially with the, the work, work from home stuff and just newer companies that are are cropping up is that a lot of their services are all cloud-based services, and they have a lot of infrastructure in the cloud for their, their core kind of things. Uh, and then they're just kind of shipping their employees, you know, MacBooks and stuff to work from. So pretty different dynamic from, you know, the, the good old, you know, AD joined systems. It's kind of a, it's kind of fresh. I like it because it's this new kind of frontier. Uh, there's a lot more Mac research going on these days. Definitely something that I'm, I'm looking at a lot now is, um, you know, looking at what to do in those situations. But um, yeah, it's a lot of fun because you're basically starting in from a, a completely different kind of endpoint uh, and then hopping into a whole bunch of cloud stuff. So definitely been a part of some engagements where that was the case and had a lot of fun doing those. So it's cool, cool stuff. So in those environments, if there's no AD, and there's a bunch of MacBooks, uh, I assume mm -hmm. like Jamf or something is managing them. But um, do those environments typically have a VPN? And are those VPNs, do they have flat networks or are most of their like cloud services just have public IP addresses and how are they protecting those or what do you see? The ones I've been a part of definitely have VPN in order to hit their kind of core services they need to reach, uh, whether that be, you know, the internal wikis or uh, certain proprietary services and stuff like that, that they have going on. What we've basically done, and again, this is more of the penetration testing aspects as opposed to like a full on red team type deal. Basically starting with like an assumed breach kind of scenario where we're on this person's MacBook that is basically they've been chosen. It's uh, they're, they're kind of indicative of a, a typical user, whether that be a, a developer that will have access to certain services, but really asking that, you know, they're not kind of the, the high kind of IT person. It's more just your, again, your kind of standard developer role or standard role that most people would have access to certain things. And then kind of basing off of that where... Uh, okay, so can we, you know, dump cookies, use their VPN access to then hop into other services? Do they have cloud keys? Do they have other other things on their system that we can we could take advantage of, and then use that as kind of our our foothold and springboard into the rest of the cloud environment? So it could be a lot of fun, but uh, definitely in most cases uh, there is some form of VPN protection. You know, definitely seen a lot of clients using like Okta and stuff like that as well so that kind of being like the the main guard but yeah it's kind of a variety but i would say that definitely more vpn focused in, in my experience anyway got it what about like the uh i guess the new terms uh sassy the secure access service edge i know that a lot of folks have been drinking the zero trust kool-aid for over a decade now <laughs> and everybody's trying to get the zero trust what have you seen in terms of like when you're in an engagement, you see a product that claims to be like a, a SASE product. Mm -hmm. Is it fully implemented like true zero trust or is it still like halfway implemented or, or what do you see? 
Well, I've definitely come across, you know, a variety of different products, devices and such that are trying to protect and implement those kind of things. It, it really going to depend. So I, I have not been impeded by those, but that's also mainly due to the way that I operate. A lot of times, and again, this kind of goes to how they're configured and you know what's whitelisted, what's not whitelisted. I like to proxy through machines as much as possible. So I don't want to run things on the endpoint. I like operating off host as much as possible. So just in terms of my favorite kind of TTPs to use, uh, even if I drop a beacon on a host, uh, and that could be, you know, whatever, Windows, Mac, anything. If I have a C2 call out, callback, I want to drop a proxy somehow and start routing through that way. Um, so now anything that I'm hitting is going to be appearing as if it's from that host. So that host, in most cases, is going to be whitelisted for certain things or allowed, permitted through the firewall to hit certain things. So that kind of turns that on its head, right? And that also factors into potential MFA bypasses where there might be some allowances where if you're accessing you know, from the, quote, internal, there might be lesser scrutiny for that kind of thing. But really, the source IP is going to be that endpoint. So that means that I can now hit cloud services. I can hit, you know, uh, whatever it be, Azure, AWS, or anything like that. But the IP is going to be that infected endpoint. It's not coming from... Australia or you know, some other IP just randomly, it's going to be something that looks like it's coming from internal. So that kind of changes the dynamic of everything. We're not going to get blocked that way. So that kind of goes into more of kind of behavioral analysis too. You know, like what is this endpoint doing? Is this supposed to be doing this? The frequency of that activity or even the callbacks to the domains that's reaching out where, you know, if you're trying to block certain, certain things, you know, CloudFront is a great example. If we're using that as kind of a domain front or a redirector, something that's that's AWS or that, that looks normal. It's kind of hard to just blanket stop all that stuff without kind of really monitoring the behavior and that callback frequency and stuff like that. So it's really tricky. So I guess I would say to kind of summarize is that there's no real silver bullet, in my opinion. It really is, you can have all the devices in the world and that's great. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to help to certain degrees, but you really got to dial in, you know, your network and look at behavior stuff too. It's, you know, shouldn't be, well, I got these devices set up. I'm good to go hundred percent. Got to, got to, got to look at stuff too. Yeah. Actually that kind of makes me think about when you're talking about the callbacks, like with CloudFront and like, you know, any CDN um, that could be useful, like a C2 and stuff, being able to like, so it can be hard if you're like a defender and you're like, oh, this box called CloudFront, right? But if you're like, need to trace back, okay, what mm -hmm. website triggered the call to CloudFront, right? Or was it just, you know, some random process or, or is it like a hollowed, you know, process or whatever, right? So there's like some new technology going on now where they, they've decided that using Chrome and stuff in Firefox is not a good idea in a corporate environment. And they've created mm -hmm. their own Chromium-based like enterprise browser that's built for security and it has a lot of telemetry data. So in that case, theoretically, you should be able to know which website triggered the call to CloudFront or whatever, right? And it'd be a lot harder, I guess, if you could tie all that data together. Right. It's like a, like a sore thumb, right? Your C2 call, if it wasn't tied to like a normal website, a normal permitted website for that company or whatever. So uh, I'm thinking maybe it'll get a little bit harder, but I mean, there'll probably still be ways around things, but that is, I don't know, maybe there's a glimmer of, glimmer of hope. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I think Dave Kennedy had a really awesome talk where he was talking about, uh, you know, behavior 
user behavior kind of analytics and stuff like that and painting a story basically or, or creating a story that links all this stuff together so where you're basically tying all your pieces together to make it look believable so whether that be you know from basically from the from the whole you know gecko of all this stuff where what file is executing this thing to trigger this thing to this callback and if you could kind of paint this kind of believable picture you know the the analyst isn't going to really think twice about you know it being bad so if you do have you know legit looking kind of chain of events it's going to be incredibly hard to differentiate that from something where it's like you know something that's more telltale of like okay it's this is bad even though it's cloud front like the things before this, you know, is really kind of weird. Uh, so this is probably needs some further investigation. But if you're chaining all these things together to kind of make this story that's believable and looks legit, like a user would typically do something like this, and you know, there's evidence there to support that, it's going to be incredibly hard for them to kind of tell. You know, is that is that bad? Like, I don't, I don't know. It looks like. <laughs> This looks kind of normal, you know. It's it's incredibly difficult, so uh, it's it's definitely tricky things, and definitely like to keep that in mind while I'm doing ops and engagements. Is you know, fabricating that story around that payload and around the activity to make it look believable. So really awesome talk. I I would recommend uh, searching for that and checking it out. Yeah, definitely. That sounds uh, really interesting. Uh, it's almost like um, social engineering, but instead it's like sock engineering, right? <laughs> Oh, it, it, it is. It, it's a, it, it is. It's a 100% social engineering, but it's more just uh, storytelling and it's, it's, it's fun. And, and whether that be linked up to the, the kind of phishing ruse uh, that get, kind of gets extended, or if it's just, you know, the, the payload itself or something that you're doing on the system afterwards after a compromise. Yeah, it really is kind of just, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're social engineering it, playing, playing that analyst. So that's really cool. So you were talking about Okta, not to pick on Okta, but it is pretty popular. Sure. Well, I'm curious, like, so what do you see in general is the initial entry to a lot of companies just uh, maybe over the past, you know, five or 10 years, has that changed? Is it, has it always been identity or is it more identity now? Is it misconfigured MFA, password spraying? I'm just curious. It's really a wide variety. And I, I think it's changed a lot lately where specifically in terms of phishing for initial access it's incredibly hard uh these days with all the you know email securities and just the the, the kind of time investment needed to really curate domains that are 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 valid and and you know good uh have good rep and putting all that stuff together where true you know real the, the real bad guys they could be planning these campaigns for really long periods of time uh, you know, taking that slow kind of approach and, and making these things, setting up their infrastructure, you know, letting it age where for the consultant side, you know, these are basically short and sweet engagements. Re recently, it's really three, four weeks for, for like a red team, you know, exercise. Basically, it's not anything that's like months long anymore. I'm sure there are still some other uh, places that do that. Uh, and that, and that's awesome. It's just, for a time's perspective, it's incredibly hard to kind of mimic that stuff given the kind of time frame there. Kind of got to play it as best as you can, but you know we don't have the luxury of kind of just <laughs> really curating those stuff over the long term. So it's really going to depend on uh, what the goals are. But uh, I think OSINT is definitely important uh, to kind of dictate you know um, which avenue you should go first in order uh, to kind of get that initial access. So 
if you do see that they have Okta or a lot of their services are really kind of out there in the cloud, um, maybe you want to do a CRUD capture campaign. Because, uh, you know, basically everything that is involved with like, you know, macros these days and, and Word documents, you might get lucky. Maybe maybe you will get one to, to go by, but it's incredibly difficult. Maybe you could use an HTA that might work in some instances too, but it's really all going to depend on um, on that client's maturity and what, what they have going on. And again, I think it really goes back to that pre-planning and OSINT and discovery to kind of know what the, the best kind of avenue to pursue is. But I guess to circle back to the actual question, um, it's kind of been both. Sometimes payloads work. Um, sometimes you get lucky. I've definitely had a, a lot of good success with credential capture campaigns, specifically targeting you know, like things like Okta or, or those kind of services where um, using man in the middle, uh, stuff like Evil Gen X or something like that to get that proxy in between and ripping out their, <laughs> ripping out their credentials by uh, making a ruse where, you know, they got to log in somewhere. Uh, had a really interesting um, experience once actually with that, where they put together a, a pretty good ruse in my, in my opinion, um, <laughs> where we, we were actually targeting some Okta credentials and what happened was we actually got busted. Someone had correctly flagged it as a phishing email, even though I thought it was, maybe it was too perfect. I don't know. It, it, I thought it was pretty well written. The ruse was, was pretty good, but uh, kudos to the user who you know tossed that in to the security team. But for whatever reason, the analyst who was investigating the phishing email thought that they were in a sandbox and actually put in their credentials. So we get a hit back and... You know, it's basically we see a username that is not any of the users that we targeted. So I go on LinkedIn. I'm like, you know, who is this person? Uh, and it turns out, you know, it's a it's a security analyst on the team. Wow. And I'm like, is this, you know, are these real creds? Like, it, it, and sure enough, you know, the the rest of the kind of session data came back, and we were able to log in to Okta under this person's context. So what was actually really, really neat was the user did actually recognize that they got compromised or, or did something mistakenly uh, after the fact. So initially we had access to their email and everything like that. But since they did have kind of a tile specific MFA active uh, within Okta, uh, we got booted from stuff like Officer 65 and Azure and all that stuff. But what we did retain access to was Proofpoint. So we basically were able to use our access in Proofpoint to then send in a payload and we just pushed it through Proofpoint and had someone actually detonate that payload. So kind of an interesting uh, twist of event there, but uh, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was an interesting one for sure. Um, you, know, uh, you know, mistakes happen. It's, uh, it's kind of like what we we're talking with the, the client at that time is, you know, it's kind of good to have the safe space where, you know, mistakes happen here to know that, you know, that, that wasn't an actual sandbox where stuff wasn't actually getting out uh, or, or was actually leaking out. Um, so <laughs> they had a, they had a bunch of things to fix there in, in that regard. So uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. So with the Octa breach, first they said it didn't happen. Then they're like, it was 300, you know, something companies. Now, and now they're saying it was like two companies. It was through Cytel, which was, company that was acquired by the third-party management company. And so I haven't read anything about how the initial access, if it was like just MFA bombing after they got credential stuffing or if they paid an insider or, or, or whatever it was. But it got me thinking, like, if you have to assume that your MFA, like Okta, is compromised, right? 
then do you now need a third factor, right? Do you need to have a duo account as well? <laughs> right. And should that factor not be something you're prompted for? Like, I mean, should it be something like where, I don't know, because I mean, even with this, um, I think you said it was evil Gen X, right? Where there's yeah, like a, yeah. a web form, like man in the middle. I mean, so maybe maybe you need like a, with FIDO2, would that, does evil Gen X work with FIDO2 or not? Uh, I am not too sure, actually. Uh, definitely have to look that up and, and <laughs> see about that, but not, not too sure. But, uh, I totally understand the, the sentiment there about, you know, yeah. How many multi-factors deep do we need to go to make this secure? Because it's wild, you know, um, you know, you're, you're bypassing multi-factor and all this stuff and then what? So like, you need to like drops of blood eventually to, you know, let us in. Yeah, right. right. Um, I think it's more of a question of fine tuning certain aspects that work best. Uh, Duo, for example, you know, and, and you mentioned the kind of MFA bombs, right? So are push notifications to that to accept that stuff really a good idea or should people be manually entering in codes? And my perspective, I'm more of a proponent for, you know, manually entering those codes because there are people that will just say yes eventually uh, when you spam them with enough messages. If you get lucky, does it work every time? No, probably not. But, you know, it is a factor to consider even though there are two options I still feel like it's a safer option to have that code because that requires more manual effort. And maybe it's a bit of a hassle for the person who's logging in, but there's always trade-offs. So it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. And I've had these conversations too with clients. Well, like, but I, but I multi-factored this and then we we're going to multi-factor the tiles now too, after the fact, like what, how many, how many layers of multi-factor do we need? Um, and I agree. It's, it's, it's wild. Like it's, you know, kind of crazy stuff so <laughs> yeah it's almost like for sensitive areas you could do something like maybe in the octa app maybe like something on your phone where like let's say you need to access proof point right and i go to my octa portal mm -hmm. and i accept my push and all that but then before i click the proof point tile i, I go to my phone and I, and I click like proof point on my phone right let's say there's like some imaginary app and then i click it right mm -hmm. and that way like someone did a compromise in my octa session and stuff like that It'd be useless because they wouldn't have my phone that, that said right beforehand I was going to go to proof point or, or whatever. I don't know. It's there's got to be a, um, some sort of another solution I'm thinking, but I, I'm just kind of spitballing here. I don't know. Yeah, definitely, and you can definitely organize it to have MFA per tile as well for those individual services. Uh, but then it goes to the whole thing is like, okay, well, I just put in MFA for this thing. Now I have to do Octa MFA again for every you know thing I'm logging into, and it just it's that trade-off between user convenience or uh, you know that kind of experience versus you know trade-off for security again, and it's 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 a hard thing to. <laughs> I would definitely say go towards the more secure route, but then people get inconvenienced and hate it, and it's you know they gotta gotta understand <laughs> this isn't it's a necessary thing at the moment until some better solutions come up. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a super hard sell. For sure. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. How do you avoid burnout? Has burnout ever been an issue for you? Yeah, it, it definitely happens. Um, whether it's like a, a full case of burnout where it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do anything. I don't think it's really gotten to that point. I'm pretty good about managing that kind of feeling. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it, it's usually always fun to do this stuff, but sometimes you do kind of get in that rut where you're just like, you know, I don't really feel like studying or reading about this thing. I don't feel like working on this certain thing, whatever it may be. And I find like to get around those things, it's just, 
and, and even when it does come to the, you know, whether it be straight up engagements too, uh, maybe we're getting, you know, you know, burned out from doing too many engagements back to back and it's kind of getting boring. Um, definitely go outside and get some exercise. One of my managers would always say like, make sure you're getting sun on your eyeballs, which is important. <laughs> so I definitely find that exercising, um, getting outside and doing things too is important. Don't just sit at your computer all day, you know, make sure you move around. When it comes to the actual like infosec specific ruts where you're just like, I'm not interested in this anymore. Like, I don't want to look at this. I feel like it's good to kind of just focus on the things that you enjoy. Don't feel obligated for certain things. Like if you're like, oh, I, you know, I really got to, I really got to hone my skills for, um, you know, windows exploit stuff. Uh, but I don't feel like doing that. Well, you know, it's okay to take a step back from that. And, you know, maybe you're more interested in, you know, uh, hardware hacking or something, uh, go do that for a bit and take a break. Uh, you know, let your mind kind of wander to where it wants to go and, um, you'll be, you'll be better off in the long run and fresher. Definitely know I've spent too much time looking at something and got on the verge of burnout and just need to step away from it. And you come back fresh and, you know, you, you'll notice new things and kind of dive into other aspects too, that maybe you didn't see from the first time. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, like doing my own thing. Like I said, exercise, go outside, play some video games, <laughs> just, just have fun. That's great. Yeah, that, that's good advice. For folks that are newer to Red Team or pen testing or are looking to maybe make the switch over to, to uh, joining like a Red Team or doing pen testing, what, what kind of advice would you give them? Now is the time. Uh, there's so many, again, you know, there's so many good resources out there uh, and so much awesome research just being conducted by so many talented people you know, the avenues to really practice and, and study these things. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm mentioning things like hack the box or those kind of lab environments to just kind of test your skills and kind of learn in that hands-on regard. So prevalent these days, which is just so, so awesome. Like I, I'm always constantly thinking like, you know, what if these resources were available back when I was in college uh, before I made this weird shift to a Japanese major, right? Um, I probably would have stuck with it and just kind of ran with it because it's really interesting I still remember the first time I was on um, Bonehub at the time and tried my first vulnerable machine, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is amazing!" Like I'm I'm hacking, you know. It 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 just it's awesome, and it just hooks you, and you're like, "I I gotta do more." So, um, so I'd say it's definitely a golden time to to get into this stuff, just to the you know how many resources there are, but don't get discouraged. It's uh, it's definitely not necessarily the easiest thing to hop to and whether you're coming from blue team or you're coming from absolutely nothing i think from the blue team side you're gonna have some different insight into things that you know just a pure red teamer wouldn't have so kind of you know blue team red team we're all kind of the on the same side regardless and even though we're two different things on, a, on the same coin i think having that shared mindset is really important so I would say don't neglect the blue team side. Don't neglect the detection kind of mindset and that investigatory, you know, kind of thought process. Uh, it's helpful. You know, red teamers might think a little bit different than blue teamers at times, but um, I think having that shared knowledge is is super huge and really differentiates people when it comes to red teaming. So if you're a blue teamer and want to get into red teaming, you know, use that knowledge you have. It's it's definitely powerful. But if you're coming from nothing. Um, again, you know, hit up these resources and don't get discouraged. Just get hands on, keep fighting it, get a good foundation. I think the most important thing for, for newer people is really establishing the kind of core 
networking fundamentals and, and all that stuff, you're going to be able to build on that and just kind of keep growing. So build stuff, learn coding, um, and then start hopping into more of the, the, the hacky stuff, quote unquote. I like it. It's a technical term, the hacky stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get involved too. You know, uh, there's a lot of, a lot of great meetups and stuff like that, whether that be like local DEF CON meetups or, um, you know, conferences to get involved with, to meet, you know, like-minded people, you know, discord, there's a lot of cool discord channels that have a lot of cool conversations going on where you could pick up and learn stuff. Um, read write-ups for, for CTFs or anything like that. Again, just get involved and get hands-on as soon as you can. Uh, don't, I know when I was just learning, I started hopping into CTFs really early and I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I'm lucky if I got a, a simple flag from like reading the source code, right? I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> but uh, then we start breaking into the more the, the, the harder stuff. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. There's a lot of, you know, what I would say like gatekeepers or uh, the kind of mindset, uh, which I don't agree with, which is, you know, the, the kind of try harder mentality, which is good for a certain degree. Uh, you know, I don't think you should be asking for answers for certain things right away because it kind of detracts from the learning process. And again, that kind of hacker mindset to, to dig in, but um, you know, it's okay to ask people for help. Like uh, I, I think that should be encouraged. And um, you know, I don't think anybody who's starting out would just immediately know like, oh yeah, you know, this is what I need to do. This is what I focus on. Like, no, I need some kind of guidance. So, uh, find a Sherpa and, uh, you know, hopefully they'll be able to guide you and, and, and help you out. So, uh, I'm, I'm always, you know, I'm always into helping people and, and learn because I know the kind of struggles I had to learning this stuff, you know, it would have been nice to have somebody to kind of <laughs> go under their wing and kind of teach me some stuff too, but hoping that, uh, in the future, you know, just sharing knowledge with people and, and help them get up to speed. So I've definitely helped uh, a bunch of people kind of break into the field, which feels good you know, anybody can do this stuff. It's just right amount of effort and, you know, have the passion to keep going. Definitely. That, that, that's great advice. Do, do you have any passion projects? Right now I am getting pretty heavy into rust. I think it's a really powerful language and something that's super useful. So <clears throat> I been spending a lot of time developing some uh, rust based command and control type stuff, really digging into more of the, the, kind of code base for that and uh, building that stuff out. Super, super fun, kind of just a little project. But yeah, I like I like making those kind of things. It's, uh, it's neat. Well, it's great. Thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to, to come on the, the podcast today and, and share your knowledge. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, a lot of fun. Again, you know, I will, uh, I will talk people's ear off about this stuff. They don't stop me, so. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, maybe we'll have to have you back for round two or something. <laughs> <laughs> would be super fun. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. If you liked the episode today and would like to help support us, please hit subscribe, drop us a review, or share it with your friends. Thanks.